we are going to put off our series in Acts for just a couple more weeks as we talk about Jesus in this Christmas season. One of the greatest passages, one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible, Isaiah 53. It is glorious. I just, I could not wait to preach this message all week. I just been studying Isaiah 53. What a glorious, glorious passage. It's going to fuel your faith for the word of God. You're going to have even more of a profound confidence in the word. When you get up tomorrow morning, you're going to look at your Bible differently, I believe. But not only that, but you're going to see Jesus in a whole nother way. That he truly is the most amazing person on the planet. Why don't you guys turn your Bibles to Isaiah 53 and put your finger at chapter 52, 13, because we'll, we'll start there, the exalted servant. But I want to read this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, that this, one, this is one of the chapters that lie at the very heart of scriptures. It is a very holy of holies, a divine right. Let us, therefore, put off our shoes from our feet, for the place whereon we stand is specially holy ground. This 53rd chapter of Isaiah is a Bible in miniature. It is the condensed essence of the gospel. There literally is no chapter in the Bible that explains the gospel better than this. And I'm talking about the New Testament. This is the most amazing chapter in the Bible that explains the full gospel in such vivid, stunning detail. It's profound. It is absolutely amazing. In fact, not only does it tell the gospel, but it, it is like the passage to explain the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. In fact, uh, Isaiah is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. About 65 times he's quoted. Jesus quotes him. The apostles quote him. The entire, the entire Isaiah scroll was found, I think some of you guys know this, in a cave near the Dead Sea, as known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, in 1947. And not only that, but you know, many scholars say, oh, maybe Isaiah was written after the time of Jesus, and people just kind of got together and maybe wrote about Jesus just to make it look like Isaiah told it foretold it 700 years prior to the death of Jesus. The scholars are dead wrong because when they found that ancient material, it was dated 150 BC. In fact, it did prove that 700 years before Jesus entered the earth that he would die. And and I'm going to show you today exact detail and how literally that passage has come alive and fulfilled in the New Testament, that you can absolutely 100% trust that the Bible is inspired and errant. It's authoritative for our lives. It's effective and powerful to transform our lives, and it needs to be continually preached in our day. Absolutely amazing. In fact, not only that, but the entire, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Isaiah's predictions were stunning. In Isaiah 13, 17 to 22, it says that the Medes would utterly destroy Babylon, that nothing would ever inherit uh, and inhabit that land again. And this was 100 years after Isaiah's death. 
The Medes, uh, it says that the Medes would destroy Babylon. But the problem is, is that at that time, that wasn't the case. No one had ever thought that would happen. And then in Daniel 5, 31, or 30 to 31, they were destroyed. Babylon was destroyed by the Medes. It's my wife's favorite book, Daniel. She's smiling in the front right here. <laughs> 50 miles south of Baghdad, Iraq. Today, that city remains uninhabited. God's word is true. It's absolutely amazing. This is a profound, I would study the book of Isaiah. You can find so much. About, in fact, it, it, just even how the, the Bible, or I'm sorry, that, that chapter is laid out is incredible. Uh, it, the first section of Isaiah, if you, if you look at it, it, it mirrors the 39 books. There's 39 uh, chapters in Isaiah mirror the 39 books of the Old Testament. It speaks about judgment. The second half of it, is 27 books, and it speaks about the 27 books of the New Testament, which resemble salvation. Nine, nine, and nine. The first nine chapters speak of Isaiah, uh, Israel's uh, salvation. The second nine speak of uh, sinner salvation. The last nine chapters speak of the whole universe salvation. It speaks about the end times, the times to come. And the second major division of Isaiah begins and ends exactly where the New Testament begins and ends. It begins with the prophecy in Isaiah 40, begins with the prophecy of John the Baptist, which is amazing. Where does the New Testament begin? With John the Baptist. Where's the old, uh, the New Testament ends with the new heavens and the new earth? The last part of Isaiah prophesies the new heavens and the new earth, as it says in Revelation. Amazing. And then, if that's not amazing, the last 27 chapters, which I said 9, 9, and 9, in the middle of those 9 chapters, which talks about the salvation of sinners, the middle of that chapter, a middle of that section is Isaiah 53. The middle of Isaiah 53 is chapter, uh, verse 6, which says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has called, caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Amazing. It literally causes us to look at the focal point of this whole entire Bible, really the entire Bible, but just even Isaiah alone, to focus on him, Jesus. It's absolutely amazing. But of course, a lot of you guys know that the Jews couldn't even read this in the synagogues. They would go from chapter 52, skip 53, go on to chapter 54. Why? Because this is the most horrific chapter in the entire Bible. It's offensive. How can this guy, as we read later, how can this supposed Savior die this horrendous death for people like us? It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's really offensive that this Savior, this Messiah to come, would come in such a way and die this horrific, when we start to get into Isaiah 53, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's, it's, you can't even read it. It's so offensive. But I want you to read it as we were talking about Jesus himself. In Isaiah 52, verse 13, we'll read it right here. It says, Behold, my servant will prosper, and he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man. In his form, more than the sons of men. 
Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told of them, they will see. And then in verse 50, uh, chapter 53, it starts off, who can believe this message? It says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is the strength of God. It's, remember, it says that the arm, God's arm is not too short to save. He bears his arm. He shows his strength to save humanity. And they're like, this weak rabbi is God's arm? That's ridiculous. Who, I was, who can believe this message? I mean, it's going to be impossible to believe this message. Virtually impossible for people Right? Remember, it says he's a stumbling stone. It's a rock of offense. It says in Colossians 2.14, having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of the degrees, decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he was taking it, taken out of the way, having nailed it to a cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them, over them through him. 1 John 3.8 says, The Son of Man, our Son of God, appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. This was God's arm. He is powerful to save. It says in John 6 and 11, Luke 8, 24, he fed people, free lunch, raised the dead, casted out devils, get power over the enemy, healed the sick. And this is, this is God's arm, but they could not believe it. The Jews could not believe it. Some theologians say that this, is, this, this passage was meant to look forward to the Messiah. Of course, this is 700 years before Jesus came. But many Jews in the end times will look back at this message, this message from Isaiah and say, who can believe this message? How did we not believe? How did our ancestors not believe this message? And so many have rejected the Lord but it is uh, one day, I believe, this is why it's so important to care for Israel and to pray for Israel. The Psalms say pray for Israel, pray for Jerusalem specifically. I think it's important as a church, as a country, to love the Israelites, the, uh, love Israel, love the country, support them, pray for them. Because I believe that, as it says in Romans 9 and 11, that God still has a plan for his promised people. Right now it's the time of the Gentiles for all of us. Who's thankful to be grafted in? <laughs> I think we're all, we're all pretty thankful for that. We're all sitting here because of it. I have three points. Go ahead and write them down just now, just to, for accountability's sake. <laughs> this Jesus was despised for us. He was wounded for us. And he was cast off for us. This is the greatest gift that we can ever receive. This truly is the Christmas gift. You know, like those Christmas gifts, this is those ones that someone gets us, but we, we don't really want, but then later on we realize we need. It's kind of like that. Jesus was, he wasn't wanted. But I believe not only Gentiles, but Jews alike will look back and say, we may not have wanted him, we may have not have thought this was the Messiah we thought that was going to overthrow Rome and take care of us. But we need him. He is the only Savior. He is the Savior to, that came 
and that will come for us. Verse two, it says, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. What is a tender shoot? It's just a suckling branch. It's not this, Jesus wasn't this majestic, powerful, if you see the oak trees out here, these powerful oak trees, massive oak trees full of fruit or a fruiting tree, beautiful, majestic. When Jesus came to earth, he was a tender shoot. He was was useless. Break it off. You don't need it. In fact, it says so many times that it says here in Luke 2, 7, it says that when Mary gave birth to her son, she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there's no room for him in the inn. Even at the birth of Jesus, there was no room. Wasn't needed. Suckling branch. Cut him off. There's no point. In fact, people were even... Uh, it says here in Mark 6, 3, is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and are his sisters not here with us? And they took offense at him. It says in John 1, 10 to 11, he was in the world and the world came into being through him. He is the creator of the world. I mean, he's the main event. He's the center of attention. He's the most powerful one in the universe, yet the world did not even know him. And he came to his own, and his own people didn't even accept him. He wasn't needed. He was just a tender, infant branch, nothing glorious. Might as well cut it off. If you cut it off, it won't really make a difference. Luke 2, 4, or 40, it says, Now the child continued to grow, and it becomes strong, increasing in wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. What's so amazing about the incarnation, especially here at Christmas time, is just that he had to be born as a baby. Then he would, this God who created the universe had to grow up. He had to go to school. He had to be under his parents' care. In fact, it says here, then Luke 2, 51 to 52, it says, and he went down with them and he came to Nazareth. And he continued to be subject to them, his parents to mom and a dad, an earthly mom and a dad who were sinful, (laughs) subject himself to imperfect parenting. Left the perfect father in heaven to come down to earth to be under imperfect parents. Although he was born of a virgin, Mary is not perfect, despite what many Catholics say. She was imperfect. She was a sinner like the rest of us. And his mother treasured all things in her heart, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and people. Luke 9, 58 says, And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the sky have nests. Even animals have a place to live and to rest and to just to to be. What did he say? But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't have a home. He didn't have an address. His driver's license would have, wouldn't have mattered. He didn't have, he didn't have anything. He didn't have an identity. It says in Philippians 2, 6 and 7, he already existed 
in the form of God, but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He gave everything. He emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. What a savior. What an incredible God we have. If that wasn't enough, he says that he's also a dry root in parched ground. You might as well take it out. It's useless. You know, in the desert, if you've ever been to the desert, sometimes these, it's just rocky soil, and you see these roots kind of protruding out. You trip over them. They're useless. They're harmful. Get it out of the way. That's what they thought of Jesus. Get him out of the way. It says in Matthew 21, 43 to 44, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And I'm whoever it falls, it will crush him. And then it says in 1 Peter 2, 6 and 8, a stone of stumbling. He, this Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It was actually fulfilling Isaiah 28, another passage in Isaiah 8. But ultimately, with this, this one that is useless, get it out of the way as people stumble on it as they're walking through life, will be the one that ultimately crushes them if they don't give their lives fully to him. What's amazing is I want you to see throughout this whole entire time is what an incredible Savior we have. We need to receive him as the greatest gift that anyone could ever give us. But also, we can trust the word. Over and over and over and over. I, I tell you, I, it was so hard for me to prepare for this because I didn't know which passage to take out. I had to take out so many passages that just affirm Isaiah. Jesus fulfilled every single one of these promises. It is incredible. And he's got more to fulfill in the coming days. Verse three, Isaiah 53, verse three. He says, he was despised and forsaken of men. He's a man of sorrows, also of pains. He's acquainted with grief or sickness. And like, from, and like one from whom men hide their face because he was despised and we did not esteem him. Men couldn't even look at him. It says he had no stately form. There was nothing majestic about him, nothing angelic about him. He looked like everybody else. There's no attraction. Unlike all the popular leaders today. In fact, you remember when the first king of Israel, Saul was good looking. And then even as they were picking the, the next one in line, they were looking for someone who is strong and beautiful. And that's how America looks at leaders. You would never pick Jesus. If there was a line of people, and you'd say, who's the next one that's going to lead us into the promised land, into righteousness, into justice? You'd never pick him. He'd be totally overlooked. Isaiah 42, 14 says this, that just as many were appalled at you, my people, so his appearance was marred beyond that of man and his form Beyond the sons of man, of course, that talks about his, the fact that they plucked out his beard, put a crown of thorn on his head. I mean, they, they mocked him so much, they, they, it was a mockery. 
His, his whole death, and it was such a mockery. They put on a robe on him. They stripped him naked, put on a robe on him, gave him a, a scepter just to, to show that, you know, he's a king. Put a, instead of a crown, put a thorns on him, blood just streaking down his face. Took his, own, took his own scepter, just beat him. It was unrecognizable. It was an absolute, just utter mockery, Roman mockery. In fact, I had to look up the word mar just to, on Google, and it just, you, you just see faces just marred because of accidents, and just faces were, it was unrecognizable. Verse 3, he says that he was despised and forsaken of men and utterly deserted, it means. He was utterly deserted. He was rejected. It says in John 1, 46, when he came on the scene, Nathaniel said, can anything even good come out of Nazareth? This is where he grew up. Nothing good comes out of there. They were mocking him. Mark 3, 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed, if that wasn't enough, just where he, the town he came from, he was possessed by Beelzebul, which is the devil. Not only just was he tossed aside as a regular man who has no significance in life, they said, they so far said, you have a demon, you're a demon. <laughs> you're of the devil. He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Matthew 27, 9 says that, which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set for by the sons of Israel, he was betrayed with for 30 pieces of silver. Luke 23, 18, but they cried out together saying, away with this man, away with him. Release us, Barabbas, who is a criminal murderer. I'd rather have him out in public but put this man away. I never want to see him again. He was a man of sorrows, pain, grief, sickness. It says in Isaiah 50, another fulfillment of Scripture, I gave my back, you know, the beating that he took, the Roman beating. I gave my back to those who would strike me and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. This was 700 years before. Amazing. I did not hide my face from the insults or spitting. People spit in his face. Can you imagine? In God's face. The one who gave them the ability to have saliva to break down food, spit. These people spit in his face. Amazing. He was despised, unesteemed, non-existent. He was so ugly that people had to turn away because they were afraid to see his, their facial expressions. Have you ever seen something so grotesque? You just, you're like, you just, their facial expression, they, they just hid their face. They'd rather just not even show their face because of what Jesus looked like. Jesus was despised. The next few verses, he was wounded for us. It's amazing. Our griefs and his sickness he bore it says in Matthew 8, 17, when Jesus came to Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever and he touched her hand and a fever left her and he got up and waited on him. Now, when evening came, they brought, him, brought to him many who were demon-possessed, cast out the spirits, all those who were ill that he healed. This happened so that 
What was spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled. He himself took our illness and carried away our diseases. Surely our griefs himself, he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried, yet ourselves he esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded, in other words, on purpose. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. In fact, Isaiah said that that they will look on him whom they have pierced. So just talking about, he fulfilled even that passage as well. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening or the punishment for our peace, our well-being fell on him. And the scourging, we are healed. All the weight of the whole, of all sinful, I just can't even, I don't think humans can even understand that kind of weight. But literally all the whole weight of the world, past, present, and future, every billions and billions of people sin, thrusted, on the body of Jesus. He was literally crushed for our sin so that we could get peace. Hebrews 9, 28 says, so, that, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, we can't even bear our own burdens. It's impossible for us to even bear the burdens that we have as one human being, let alone the entire planet past, present, and future. He bore them all. And he will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await for him. 1 John 2.2 says, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not only for us only, but for the sins of the whole world. He bore them all. That's incredible. What God wants you to know this morning is that he is a big God. He can literally take your small, tiny, little problems that you have magnified in your life and make them so tiny. He has the ability to do that. He has the ability to take what you put under your burdens under a microscope and magnify them, to take those same burdens and for you to look at a telescope and see how small they are. It is amazing. They are far from us because he takes them. Whatever your burden is, Whatever you're suffering through. Now, he's not talking about just even, I mean, yeah, he's talking about the weight of your sin as far as your offense to God, the sins that needed to be punished for all of eternity. He took those, but also your burdens, your sicknesses. Now, he is talking about many people get this wrong. By the scourging, we are healed. He's talking about a spiritual healing. How many know that our physical healing is not guaranteed on this side of heaven? As much as we want to believe, I know that God can heal. He does heal through the prayers of his people. But all of our spiritual sickness, he says, in fact, he says this, that I didn't come for the spiritually healthy. I came for the sick. It's all of us. Those who recognize he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was chastened or punished for our well-beings, for our peace. Isn't that amazing? You've got to see yourself in this passage. Don't be like the Jews who just ignorantly pass over this passage when God was willingly to pass over their sins at Passover. 
the Jews passed over this amazing, marvelous message. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself brought our sins in the body upon the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness by his wounds. You are healed, Peter understood that. Romans 3.24 and 26, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation for his blood through, through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. See, there's a question all of us have. How can God be so just and forgiving at the same time? How is that possible? How can he do that? That's the age-old question. Is, uh, Exodus 34 says that how can God actually pardon our sin and say, you know what, that's, that is the question even for Muslims. I and mean, we're on the street. I mean, how can God do How can God overlook and pardon our sin, but yet visit the people and not allow people to get away for their sin, but punish it? The cross. That's what makes, I, that's what makes Christianity so profound. That this God didn't just let rebellious, stubborn, ignorant, entitled kids, spoiled kids just get away with murder. Oh, they didn't get away with it. They never got away with it. And when we trust what Jesus has done on the cross, he's saying, oh, I forgive you because I punished him. And that is the amazing thing about the gospel That is what the gospel is. That's what's so profound. That he is both just and the justifier, it says in the scriptures. Because it is God's merciful restraint. He let the sins previously committed go unpunished. For the demonstration that is of his righteousness at the present time. So that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. The only way that happens is when we trust in him. Just as you could trust that chair to hold you up this morning, you sit on what Jesus has done and you sit satisfied because God is satisfied in his work. That is why we come together, guys, as a church. Because we can be satisfied in what God has declared. I am satisfied because of the work of Jesus and anyone who trusts in me is righteous, is just. If you came this morning with even a tinge of guilt, it is washed away. Whether you get a Christmas present this year, doesn't matter. You got one for all of eternity. It's the only thing that'll last. Romans 5, 6 6 to 10, for while we are still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one would hardly die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. If you doubt God's love, listen to this. In that while we are still sinners, think about your worst, your worst day that you've lived so far. Your worst guilty, you, you want to hide, you wish you would be disintegrated, you, just, you wish you wouldn't even exist. Listen, <laughs> Christ died for us. In that moment. That's incredible. He didn't die for you at your best moment. 
but in your worst. Much more than how, and now then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from? What are we saved from? We're saved from our sin. But this is the gospel right here. We're saved from God's wrath. We're saved, literally, the arrow is pointed back towards every sinner as soon as they get out of the womb. And the only way that that arrow, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go no matter what. At the end of your life, your whole life, yeah, you live to 35, it's, it's pointed at you for 35 years. You want to live to 45, 105, that thing is pointing at the Japanese man in Japan for 100, at 145, or 105 years, 145, 105, 105. That thing is getting more and more stretched, ready to go. And it's either going to aim at his heart for all of eternity or at the heart of Jesus. It's either going to go, and at that last minute, that's why it's important to go on mission, because at the last minute, that thing can deflect and go right at the heart of Jesus, where it should, instead of at that man for all of eternity. We are saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, his perfect life. Hebrews 10.10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. We don't have to wait for another savior. The Jews can stop right in their tracks right now and understand that he already came for them. Verse six, all of us are like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity or the sin of us all to fall on him. You know, by nature, we're sinful. I mean, Psalm 51, David understood that. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your faithfulness, according to the greatness of your compassion, wipe out my wrongdoings. Listen to this. I mean, I prayed this over, I couldn't tell you how many times I prayed this in college. This was every day. Because my eyes was, they were opened. They weren't opened so that God would give me a better life. They weren't opened so that God can add more pleasure to my life as if I was bored and now I'm alive. I was dead and now I'm alive. I, I, I stopped in my tracks because I realized I am an offense to God for the first time. I didn't just need a little bit of help. I love this. This is wash me thoroughly from my guilt and cleanse me from my sin for I know my wrongdoings and my sin is constantly before me. Does it feel like that? Against you, God, you only. If I sinned, sure, I've sinned against my mother, or my brother, or my father, or my coworker, but I've done what is evil in your sight. I have sinned against you so that you are justified when you speak. You are totally justified to throw me in hell. Totally justified. And blameless when you are judge. Behold, I was brought forth in guilt, and in, my, in sin my mother can see me. He understood original sin. Behold, you desire truth in my innermost being, and in secret you will make wisdom known to me. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Cleanse me, and I'll be whiter than snow. You know, the whole world longs for that. You know, deep down, everybody longs to be clean. 
You know, many people take showers at night because they just want to go to bed clean. And they take another shower in the morning. They just want to be clean. Sometimes even I've known people who sin. They just want to take a shower just to feel clean. But do you know that the waters of the shower never cleanse a man? Only the blood of Jesus. Cleanse me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me, let me hear joy and gladness. I just want to feel like I'm right with my father. I want to walk around the house knowing that he's not still angry at me. Let the bones you have broken, they break in the presence of God like it did in Isaiah 6. They break, but God then restores them. Hide your face from my sins and wipe out all my guilty deeds. Of course, then you know Romans 3, 1 says, There is no righteous versus not even one. There is not one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. Together we have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. All have sinned, verse 23, have, and have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are guilty. Every single one of us. But the Lord has caused the iniquity to fall on him. I love this passage. Many of you know, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin. So they become, he might become sin for us on our behalf. He became sin on our behalf. So that everyone who believes in him, we might become the righteousness of God. What a glorious passage. What a glorious exchange that we are totally right with him because he became our sin. In Galatians 3, 10 to 14, he took the curse for us instead. He was cursed on the tree where we should have been cursed. We should have been cursed. Verses seven and nine, not only was he despised, he was wounded and crushed, but he was also cast off. He went through the most miserable trial than any one of us could ever even imagine. He was oppressed and afflicted. He didn't even open up his mouth. mouth. Says he, would, he was oppressed. He didn't even open up his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. He was quiet like a sheep that was silent before its shears. He did not even open up his mouth. Here it says in Luke 23, 9, it says, During the trial, he questioned him at some length, but he offered him no answer at all. What a great fulfillment. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, says in 1 Peter 2.23, and while he was being abusively insulted, he did not insult in return. He never, ever, ever defended himself. How many of us even defend ourselves even when someone just points out something that's clearly wrong in our life, like our spouse, <laughs> when they say something? How many times? But I, We could get so defensive. We literally have no right to be defensive. Jesus had every right to be defensive. You know, I made you, by the way. I've not committed one sin, and you're putting me on trial? Oh, you could have schooled them all. It would have been a great movie to make. It really would have. It would have been awesome just to see, yeah, get him. Like, he deserves it. You know, like, just it would have been so fun to watch. But it says he did not threaten, 
but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges rightfully. He knew God was a vindicator. Oh, God can vindicate. No big deal. He can be quiet. He didn't have to defend. Next time you want to defend, just pause and know that your Savior didn't even defend himself once. Amazing. Verse 8, by oppression, oppression and judgment, he was taken away. This was the most illegal trial man has ever known. They were supposed to wait. In fact, reading about this and studying, they should have waited 40 days before they tried him, convicted him, and then killed him. In fact, I remember we were studying Acts, and they, they weren't, they, they were, they held the one, uh, they, they couldn't even do a trial at night. They had to hold the, the person for one night, and so they could hear the case the next morning. How fast was that trial when you read through the last part of the Gospels? It was so fast, they wanted to get him in and out. They couldn't even look at him anymore. It was illegal because they should have waited 40 days. I guess there are some writings in the Jewish writings that they, uh, this was so embarrassing that this was an embarrassment to the Jews that they did this, that they, they couldn't even wait 40 days, but they needed to do it swiftly because they couldn't stand. They hated him so much that they needed to do it so fast. Can you imagine that? It was so oppressive, but judgment, in the judgment, he was guilty. They kept screaming, crucify him, crucify him. In fact, it says in Matthew 26, 65 to 66, then the high priest tore his robes and said, he blasphemed. What further do we need witnesses? See, you now have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And then they answered, he deserves death. He deserves death. He wasn't doing anything wrong. He's claiming to be God. He was rightfully God. And it says, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, the stroke wasn't, he didn't deserve the stroke, we did. The stroke was due to us, not him. Verse 9, his grave was assigned with, a, with wicked men. And he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence. He was innocent. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth. I love this. You know, he should have gone to Gehenna. He should have gone outside the, the city and died in a dump to be burned and to be burned forever. But what happened? God wouldn't allow that. I love this. This is, again, a fulfillment of the scriptures. 700 years prior, they predicted this, that he would not die with sinful men. In Matthew 27, 57 to 60, it says that when it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea came. His name was Joseph, who himself also became a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Then Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and laid it in the, in the, empty, the new tomb, which he had cut out of a rock, and rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. This was fulfilled. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. Why would God not allow him to be burned in a dump 
because it says another fulfillment in Psalm 16, 9 to 11. It says, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo any decay. You will make known to me the way of life and in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there's pleasures evermore. What an amazing, amazing God we have. Exact fulfillment of the scriptures. Perfect. You can trust this word with everything that you have. Don't listen to a scholar that will tell you otherwise. Don't listen to people, atheists on the streets, on campus, family members. You can trust this word with everything you have. He says that he was innocent. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have some high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are yet without sin. 7.26, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, a holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This is Jesus. 1 John 3, 5 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He is perfect. The Jews can believe him. We can believe him. The whole world can believe and trust him. Because a sinner cannot die for a sinner. The reason why we can trust our salvation is because he was the sinless one to die for the sinful one. We can trust him with everything we have. And then lastly, the last three verses, Jesus was resurrected for us. He was despised, rejected. He was wounded, beaten, cast off, and killed. But through his humiliation... He was affirmed and exalted by our Father. Do you know there's always a resurrection after death in the Christian life? Do you know every time you humble yourself, it says in James and in 1 Peter 5, James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, it says that everyone who humbles himself, what? God will exalt him. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You know the reason why we don't have to be all bent out of shape when we're ridiculed? One, we have a great model in Jesus, but because God's going to make everything right. There's no need to defend because he'll make everything right. And if we humble ourselves, just as he is exalted, we'll be exalted above all the enemies. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? We just have too much. It's unfair. This is the most unfair religion out there. It really is. Verse 10 says this, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. And not in some sadistic way, but he was pleased to crush him. Why? Because of what would happen to us, the inheritance. Not in some weird, twisted way that he loved to watch the Roman beating but because he knew that that was the price to be paid so that we could be with him for all of eternity. Amazing. He would render himself as a guilt altering. Make no mistake that this was part of God's sovereign plan. This wasn't a surprise, some scholars would say. Some people would say, this is not a surprise. 
This was a part of his glorious plan, in fact, all the way back to Genesis 3.15. That the enemy would bruise his heel, but God, in through Jesus Christ, would crush the enemy's head for all of eternity. Genesis 3.15. By the way, that's in the beginning of your Bible. In the beginning. (laughs) If we had all day, we could just go through every scripture passage and show you that he is who he is and who he says he is. We can trust him. We can trust our Bibles. We can trust what God says. We can trust what he did on the cross. We can trust what he says is going to come. It's amazing. Incredible. But Jesus, the, the greatest thing about all this was that he willingly gave himself as a guilt offering. It wasn't coerced. He decided to say, I'm giving myself to sinful humanity, to an illegal trial, to the worst horrific beating ever known to man on earth. To die in a tomb, alone, but then to resurrect, it says in Hebrews 12, he says, it was the joy set before, it was, it was for joy that he went to the cross. He said it before. What was the joy? You. You and me were the joy. We were the joy set before him. We were his Christmas gift. That is amazing, isn't it? Isn't that incredible? That it was before eternity passed, before everything ever even happened, he had in mind, God had in mind, that he was going to, thousands of years later, sent Jesus to come and die, to crush what the enemy did in the garden, to reverse the curse. But someone had to pay for that, and it was him. And to the Jews, this is a stumbling block. It's foolishness. To the Greeks, it's weakness. This is the most absurd thing. You mean to tell me this is God's arm? This is the creator's arm. This is the one that divided the sea. This weak rabbi with a ragtag group of people who didn't make it. You mean to tell me this is God's arm? Yes, it is. But it's contrary to everything every human being would ever even comprehend. Because you think someone would come in riding on the highest horse into Jerusalem, ready to conquer Rome, ready to defeat the enemies with swords. Jesus defeated the enemy by a crown on his head. By someone taking not a sword but a stick and to put it right in his side and that whoever stands under him gets washed and cleansed for all of eternity. That's the most amazing thing I've ever heard but the most despicable thing that those who are perishing It is fragrance, perfume, the smell of it. You know, in 2 Corinthians, it talks about the the procession of the Romans when they would defeat the enemy. They'd have the prisoners with them, prisoners of war. And they'd take this beautiful, fragrant flowers and they'd throw it on the road. And as the soldiers would crush the flowers, it would create this, amazing, profound, incredible smell 
that everybody would smell in the town. It's the smell of victory. But do you know what else? It's the smell of and the stench of death to the enemy. To those guys in the back, it didn't smell like beautiful perfume. <laughs> they knew that those prisoners, they would die a horrific death. And it's the same today that those who are being saved, it's, oh, I want the Savior. I want to receive this one. But the, to the ignorant, to the prideful, it smells like doom. It smells like doom. They know it's coming. As people lie awake at night not knowing what their future holds. Hospitals are full of them. As I talk to different nurses, people under deathbed scream before they die. Somehow I don't know if they see demons. I don't know if they know what's coming. But it isn't the smell of perfume. It's the stench of death. But some people die so graciously, they know who their Savior is. They can't wait to meet him. It's the smell of the fragrance of perfume. Then in verse 11, as a result, or let me read the last part of 10, I'm sorry. He will prolong, he will see his offspring. That's us, that's the inheritance. He will prolong his days. This is God prolonging his days, Jesus' days, the resurrection, the ascension, the sitting at the right hand of the Father, living for all of eternity. And good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. He's now the satisfied Savior. He went from the suffering Savior to the wounded Savior to the satisfied Savior. Why? Because he conquered death. My servant will justify the many. How will he be justified? By faith. Verse 12, therefore I will allot him the portion with the great and he will divide, divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. What is that? The two robbers on his side, right? He was numbered with the transgressors and he himself bore the sins of many and he interceded for the transgressors on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. He was interceding already for his future church. For his future church. And you know what he's doing for all of eternity now? It says in Hebrews 7.25, Romans 8.34, he intercedes for his people. He's praying for you now. Oh, Father, don't let him do that. That'll destroy his life. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us, says the same in Romans 8, he groans for us. What an incredible Savior. What a great gift. You just opened up the greatest Christmas present this morning. I don't know if you realize that. I gave everybody a wrapped gift, and you literally meticulously tore open every single side of that gift to open it up. It's a beautiful fragrance. But for many in the world, Japan, Israel, Thailand, Russia, Afghanistan, Central Asia, They're opening up this gift and they're doing exactly what the Jews did. Casting it aside. For what? (laughs) For the world? 
for the pleasures of this world, for the fleeting pleasures of this world? When you're on campus and you plead for people to find true hope and a true meaning and true purpose, they say, no, no, I'm not interested. For what? For a job? For a girl? It's the most absurd thing you could ever do with your precious life that you only have one to live. It's incredible. I want to read one last thing, Philippians, and then we'll close. I think it's worth noting because it just shows the sheer victory that not only Jesus had, but we all have in him. Church, I I think all of us could be reminded this Christmas to honestly humble ourselves. Whether it's the news, whether we think we know how to run this country, (laughs) I'll be honest with you, I don't think any of us could. Whether you think you could lead this church better or you think you could lead, be a better parent or be a better this or that and compare yourselves with each other, it's so foolish to compare. The only one that we're going to compare ourselves to is Jesus. He's the perfect one. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Isn't that what Christmas is all about? Where do we find this power? Have the attitude in yourselves, which also in Christ Jesus, how do we find this power that's impossible to humble ourselves, it's impossible to look beyond our selfish selves, but this is the only way, who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him above on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. This is incredible, but honestly, it gets even better because this is, this is our charge to go home with for this break. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, just as you in my presence, not only, but also, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here's the key. Here's the application. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Don't go home and complain about politics. Don't go home and complain about the fact that you don't have the job you want. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Recognize that? 
among who you appear to be lights in this world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even now as I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with all of you. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. This is a holiday of joy because of Isaiah 53 was fulfilled. And our hope is that not only that we would receive that as a church, but that we would boldly proclaim that to the nations in the coming years. That this God and his word, we can trust with every single thing that we have in our being. And we long to see people transformed. How does that happen? Sure, unleash the Bible. But live as stars. Do not complain. Live with integrity and character. Live with humility. Fight the good fight. Live with a place of joy. And you will see the world transformed. You will be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. Father, we... We thank you for for doing one of the hardest things in sending your son Jesus to watch him grow up as a baby in the manger and be rejected right at the birth. To even be misunderstood by his parents as a teenager. To then be misunderstood by his brothers and sisters and people around him is just a mere carpenter. Then to be rejected by leaders, by powerful people who should have been a rightful king, they should have bowed their knee, but instead they mocked him, killed him. But you didn't stop because you, didn't, you said you would not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You would not abandon him to Hades. But you resurrected him, raised him up, seated him at the right hand of the Father next to you, and will rule and reign forever and ever and ever and ever. But you didn't stop there. You sent your Holy Spirit to save people. And Father, we pray that there would be more salvations in this next year than ever before. We pray, God, that people would be humble servants, as it says in 2 Timothy, noble purposes. You pass down this amazing message to others and that we would be used as powerful, pure people of God in these coming days. We thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, Father God, for the Trinity, for the Scriptures, for the family of God, from the empowerment to live out all that you've called us to. Thank you. The only rightful response, church, is to worship him. So let's just stand. Let's worship him. He is at the right.